It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of Athletic Obscure, the podcast that is the home of the weird, strange, and unknown in sports. My name is Seth Mormon, and across the table from me, as always, is my good friend Richard Manning. How you doing, Seth? I'm doing well. It's hot today. It is very hot. It's uh, Labor Day weekend as we're recording this, and we are laboring under a very bad um, heat wave. Heat wave, for yeah. sure, for sure. It was like 108 in Long Beach yesterday. That's unheard of. That's Phoenix numbers. Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. Well, we are back at it today, and we're going to continue our look at the long and storied history of the Harlem Globetrotters, who, as we learned in the last episode, are not, in fact, from Harlem. And in researching the story, Rich and I really discovered really what, three distinct acts, right, Rich? Of, Absolutely. Of the story. And uh, we really only uh, covered Act 1 last time, and today we're going to uh, talk about Acts 2 and 3, right? Yeah, um, and Act 1, I mean, it was difficult to uh, just fit the second or third act into the, the first act because there's such a rich history there, and a lot of stuff that a lot of people that even watched uh, the Globetrotters growing up as a kid had no idea. You and I are in that category. Absolutely, and I think we we probably resonate more with Act 2, you know? Absolutely, because and, and we're... Of that- not even to the end of Act 2, and we'll, we'll kind of... D- describe what all of these are for sure. Yeah. And you know, Act 1 is basically the foundation, um, which is a crazy story in and of itself. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, we are going to ask you to just kind of go back to that episode and uh, listen to that so you can get Act 1. Act 2, kind of like I, I tease, might be their best known act. I think so. Yeah, at least to a certain age of people, which is definitely us. And But it ends with, um, with the franchise, well, uh, it's a mess. It's it's a mess, and and we'll get to it. And but Act Three, like all great stories, is really kind of about uh, redemption. Yeah, it's this act that as we went through it, really kind of was very surprising to us. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, once again, we're super happy to be part of the Electrocast Podcast Network of shows. You can check out all the shows on the network at electrocast.com slash podcasts. And if you want to check out the other sports related shows on the network, you can go to electrocast.com slash networks and click on Winners Edge, and you'll see the other sports shows there. Now, before we get back to our Globetrotter story today, I want to get back to our new segment called What Are We Wearing? All right? You ready yeah, for this, Rich? Yeah, I'm still not used to that whole thing because it just sounds like I'm watching like syndicated uh, TV at like one in the morning. I know. It doesn't sound... Maybe we need a new name. Maybe on Twitter you can tell us a new name. Uh, Rich and I have got lots of sports-related jerseys, hats, t-shirts, and I want to thank you all those for playing along with us on Twitter after our last episode. It was great seeing some of your jerseys. We'd like you to play along with us again. Show off your favorite jersey, hat, t-shirt, tell us a story, and of course, PG Pictures only. So, Rich, I want to ask you... 
What are you wearing today? I am wearing a Los Angeles Kings t-shirt uh, with the modern logo, and I'm wearing it because, like we said earlier, it is very hot as we're recording this, 108 degrees in Long Beach, which is, which is a coastal city, so Correct. that should not be, but this thing is like kind of built to a uh, wick away sweat and kind of has a little uh, air pockets in it so it, like kind of cool. cools off yeah so it's a uh, shirt with purpose a shirt with purpose plus it's it's your favorite hockey team it is my favorite hockey team probably really my favorite sports team absolutely and um so Seth what are you wearing well i went with a hockey theme as well i think probably i wanted to stay cool a little bit i am wearing an old style um a jersey from the Latvian national hockey team okay so hold Hold up. You said you want to stay cool and you're wearing a hockey jersey, well, which I, is actually known uh, in Canada as a sweater. Yeah. Well, this is not a sweater. It is definitely on the thinner version variety of it. It's pretty thin. Um, I, I got a cool story about this. I actually bought this in Riga, Latvia. Really? Yeah, I did. I was on a trip there, a family trip, uh, early 2000s. Um, and I went and it was the springtime. And a little bit northern latitudes, you know, where uh-huh. Riga is. Uh, I'm the the dummy from California, and I didn't really pack properly, so I had to go shopping at the mall for, like, some long sleeve shirts and, like, a jacket and stuff like that because I didn't even uh, pack them because I'm an idiot. In your defense, the internet wasn't uh, what the internet is now. Correct. I did not check the weather before we left. Right. That, that, is, that is the I'm truth. trying to help you out here, Seth. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, but as I'm shopping in the mall, of course, I'm drawn to the jerseys, and there's a whole rack of Latvian national national hockey jerseys. So of course, in addition to all the other things I picked up, I picked up this awesome sweater. Can you name a Latvian player, a player of Latvian oh descent? Oh gosh, no, I cannot. I know you probably might be able to. Actually, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, cool. All right. Well, tell us uh, tell us in in, uh, in the comments or, or hit us up on Twitter for one of those things. All right. Let's get back into it. Uh, we ended last episode with what is arguably the high point in the first act of the Globetrotters history, the game that's played in Olympic Stadium in Berlin, 1951. Amazing story. Incredible. I would actually go and venture to say that it is the high point of the Globetrotters history in general, just because Probably. it really just encapsulates what the spirit of the Globetrotters is supposed to be about. Absolutely. In fact, I heard it from a number of people, uh, some friends who texted me or some people on Twitter who really, really resonated with that story that they had never heard it before. And in fact, uh, it was my sister who texted me and said, you know, she she got a little choked up uh, listening to the story, which I I did too. How can you not? I mean, it's just such a beautiful story and the people involved, the place it takes place in and just the reaction. It is just such a visceral moment. Absolutely. And to kind of close out this first act, um, 1952, the Trotters take another world tour. Uh, This one, they uh, include a stop in London as the team was invited to be part of the festivities for Queen Elizabeth's coronation. That's incredible. Yep. Uh, And uh, as we said at the end of the episode, things were not good back home. You know, the civil rights movement was really yet to to get moving or gain steam. Uh, The Globetrotters faced difficult times, both from the white and the black communities. We got a lot more to talk about that later for sure. Yes. Uh, and Rich, you teased the story at the end of the last episode of an event that happened uh, in Tennessee. And, and we're going to get to that. But as we get into the beginning of the second act of Globetrotters history, uh, there's some pretty uh, interesting things that that happened. 
one could argue that 1953 is really the watershed here. This is where we begin kind of a downward trajectory of the team, and this is really going to permeate this entire second act. There is some really high points in this second act of their story, but this is kind of the beginning of, of, the, of the, the bad times for them. First of all, in October, you got Marcus Haynes. Remember Marcus Haynes? Yeah, Marcus Haynes, the best uh, ball handler in Globetrotters history. Absolutely. He ends up quitting the team. He was having some pretty major disagreements with uh, owner Abe Saperstein. Really, the friction began a couple of years beforehand when Abe was quoted as saying, a Negro does not need as much money as a white man. That's awful. Terrible. Haynes was quoted as saying, uh, I have a family too, and milk costs the same for both of us. Yeah. Right? And, He's absolutely right. And there were also some times when Abe would, would come into the locker room after a big win and try to give the players a cash bonus, try to keep them happy. And Haynes always refused. And he always says, put it on my salary. Yeah, absolutely. And that just shows like the arrogance that uh, Saperstein had, which we covered in the uh, first act anyway. Absolutely. Now, Abe really wanted to keep the departure of Haynes pretty quiet because there's a second movie that was about to be released and then it featured Haynes. So he didn't really want to have that bad pub before it happened. And of course, all the promotional material for the upcoming season had already been printed yep. and it really featured both Hayes and Goose. And Abe really hoped to, to persuade Hayes to return to the team. Goose meaning Goose Tatum. Correct. Goose yeah. Tatum. Thank you. Haynes went back uh, to Oklahoma and he eventually started his own traveling team called the Marcus Haynes All-Stars and they ended up touring the country for the next 40 years. All and right. in fact, Haynes is going to come back into the story in a little bit. Yes. Um, but, but we'll get to that. Abe really tried to replace Haynes with other ball handlers, but it, it was never the same. Haynes was just such a, an amazing athlete and instead of there being like this spontaneous display of ball handling, it really became a uh, a highly choreographed bit, and it was the same from game to game. Right, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's important, though, to interject that this is not to say that the choreographed ball handling wasn't terrible. Right. I mean, we, we were the age where we watched Fred Curly Neal do his shtick. And Amazing. And sliding around, and it's an incredible display of dexterity. Um, it wasn't nearly as cool, though, as Haynes' ability to just break it out at a moment's notice. Yeah, it was a very choreographed uh, particular portion of, of, that, of their show. Usually happened around the second half. Exactly, exactly. But Haynes would just just be there all of a sudden break out in this routine mm -hmm. and just it was just great now money really was starting to go to abe's head here there's really a gap widening now remember in the early days richard the whole team was traveling in his model t so yeah. that's five players in him so it's six people traveling in that one thing he stayed with the players all that kind of stuff this is all going to change he doesn't stay with the players uh, where they could find lo lodging he ended up staying in the nice hotels he's eating at the fancy restaurants he no longer gave his players a per diem for food unless they were on a tour and hmm. he was the one who's buying new suits and his players had to wash their uniforms in the sinks of their hotel rooms. That's awful. He, there was not like a, a somebody uh, taking care of the equipment, equipment manager. He ended up riding in a new red Cadillac and the players are riding in the old school buses. Now the programs in the yearbooks post 1953 um, really kind of changed to be a lot more about Abe and less about the players. There'd be multiple pages with professional photographs and stories about his life. And the players were all relegated to a little two-page spread, small uh, pictures with their photo on them. And they started calling Abe Little Caesar, kind of behind his back, saying he basically is having a Napoleon complex. Sounds well. about right. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, there's a new generation of players. They're a lot more um, well-educated, uh, well-spoken, more savvy, more vocal when it came to uh, what they wanted. And they saw the potential of the growing NBA. And they really tried to use it as, as some leverage. Yeah, and if you remember from the last episode, uh, Blacks in the NBA, Blacks had not yet gained full leverage in that league and in, in this year around that year, 1953. You know, you had players like Chuck Cooper III, Earl Loy, and that's Sweetwater Clifton, who are all ex-Lobetrotters that we talked about in the first episode of this. They were all in the league, but they were hamstrung by an unwritten rule about gameplay that kept them from being nothing but supporting players. You know, it was like pass, rebound, don't be the guy that takes the shot and puts up uh, good point numbers. Uh, this would change when Maurice Stokes entered the league in 1955 and would really change when Bill Russell right, entered right. the league in 1956 and would gradually use his clout as a basketball player to advocate for equality. The very element that Sapper seemed, seemed against uh, promoting. Yeah, it, it's strange. We talked about this in the last episode too that uh, there seemed to be this almost fear of uh, an African-American athlete being the star. There uh, was. And, yeah, and and, and that they did, they had some of these unwritten and unspoken rules against it. Now, Abe is making more money than he ever had, but he still paid the players almost nothing, Rich. Other yeah. than Goose Tatum, most of the players made less than $400 a month. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Now, let's put a little bit of historical context here. Yes. May, May 17th, 1954, U.S. Supreme Court handed out the landmark uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision, and that really kind of sounded a death knell to segregation, but it was very slow in coming. So we got a year later, we got Rosa Parks asked to go to the back uh, of the bus, and then we had the Montgomery bus boycott, mm -hmm. um, which really kind of put uh, Martin Luther King into the public spotlight, where we're you five... Know, Again, going back to, you know, Brown and, you know, Rosa Parks having the 55, Maurice Stokes wins the NBA Rookie of the Year in 1955. That really becomes like the watershed moment of the black uh, basketball player not being a secondary player in the uh, right. NBA anymore. Right. So in athletics, you see this, the parallels of what's happening beyond the arena happening also on the field of play. Exactly. There's there's parallels between sport and life, for sure. We see that in lots of things. We do. We do. And I think there, this has a certain gravitas that other things we've discussed in the past don't, that right. don't necessarily have. Now, we're still about five years away from the Greensboro counter uh, sit-ins, less than a decade away from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Things were changing, but definitely not everywhere. Yeah. All across the country, not just in the South, the Globetrotters are facing racism, Jim Crow laws, segregation. It was more blatant in the former Confederate states, but it existed really strongly, even in the North. Some of the venues would even segregate the, the crowd of a, of a Globetrotters event. They would allow only whites into the event or only blacks into the event, depending on where they were at. Some places the Trotters could only play other black teams, that they weren't even able to play other white teams. Mm -hmm. And their international tours, they were treated like stars. They were welcomed across the world, but it was a hard life for the Globetrotters on the road in 1950s America. Yeah. And in many ways, the Globetrotters helped kind of break the, the color barrier in communities across the country. At this time, they were 
it was starting to be okay for them to stay in historically white hotels, participating in events that were not segregated and playing against white players. So some things were changing, but a lot of places weren't. And that brings us to the example that we teased earlier and we teased in the, the first episode. Uh, 1956, uh, the Globetrotters are playing a couple games in Middle Tennessee, specifically in the towns of McKenzie and Jackson between Memphis and Nashville, about a half hour to an hour from the University of Tennessee Martin campus. Now, keep that campus in mind because right. that's going to come into play a little bit later in this episode. So the town's restaurants refused to feed them, even though they were the Globetrotters. So they were stuck having to eat bologna, crackers, and cheese in the back of a grocery store at the end of their games. It's just terrible. Yeah, and what's even worse is... Uh, Saperstein's yes. reaction to Saperstein this. actually did nothing, and he said nothing. That's just atrocious. I mean, that really says a lot about the character of Saperstein. He, he, he just said nothing about it and thought that saying nothing was okay. We, we know that that, that, is not, that historically does not go down well for somebody. It does not, know, And even though, you know, you can even play the, well, that was the sign of the times. Well, the times were wrong, dead wrong. Yep. And this is particularly egregious. Without a doubt. Now, moving along in the story a little bit, one of the things that the, that the Globetrotters did is they also did what was called the ballpark tour. And okay. in, in the ballpark tour, they would play basketball games in baseball stadiums. So they did this in the major leagues and the minor leagues and the Negro leagues. Okay. So they would bring their floor with them. They would go and they would, they would play uh, in this ballpark tour. And they went all over the country doing it. And, and this gets into a very fascinating bit of history. Rich, do you know when the first night game took place in Wrigley Field? Well, if you're talking baseball, I want to say like 1986 or something like that. But I'm going to guess you're not talking baseball. Nope. August 21st, 1954 was the first night game in Wrigley Field in Chicago. The Glo Globetrotters were on that ballpark tour and they played uh, for Goose Tatum night. At Wrigley Field. That's weird. How do they do the lighting? I have no idea. I tried to look this up because I knew you would probably ask about yeah. this. So I looked and I couldn't find any information online about how they did the lighting. And the two the two resources that I've been looking at, I didn't see anything either. Obviously, they brought some form of uh, of portable lighting. And, yeah. But it's like, how are you going to see inside the 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 seating bowl. I don't really know the logistics of all of yeah, this. Yeah, I remember them having conversations about potentially bringing in lighting in 1984 when the Cubs made the playoffs. Right. Before they had, but I don't think that would necessarily work because we're talking technology 30 years prior to that. Right, exactly. So, anyways, it's weird. Fun, it's fun, great fun little thing. Great mystery. Now, March 1955, the relationship between Abe and Goose Tatum really boils over. Goose suffered from what could be uh, described as, as wanderlust. Mm -hmm. he, he, he just needed to go, needed to go, and he would just disappear from the team and show up like weeks later. And they, he wouldn't tell anybody when he was leaving. So he's basically ghosting the team huh. um, at, at particular times. And this drove Abe crazy. And it all comes to a head March the 12th, uh, 1955. Uh, that is the day the Globetrotters are playing a benefit game for the U.S. Olympic Fund at the Great Lakes Naval, Naval Training Station outside of Chicago. And it's an all-Navy crowd. But really what, what made it special is that CBS TV is going to be broadcasting the game coast to coast. 80 cities, 26 million homes, they're on TV. Uh, it's the first nationwide telecast of a Globetrotter game, and Goose Tatum was there, and he was ready. And uh, he may have been a quiet man, but when the game started, he really became the clown prince. Okay. So he was kind of reserved, 
and then all of a sudden you tip the ball and he's he's the on, light switches on yeah and he and he's on uh, he's on character and he, he basically has the, the audience in the palm of his hand he scores 34 points that night he did almost all of his famous routines it was said that he put on the greatest show of his life before the greatest audience of his life and after the game he disappears there's no word from him in over a month. So know? that's like a serious Irish goodbye then. Yeah, without a doubt, right? Yeah. Eventually, Abe releases him on April the 20th. And by that time, Goose was traveling through Arkansas and Louisiana, and he had formed his own traveling team called the Famous Harlem Clowns. So he just left his job. Got a bunch of other people to play and started traveling. And just with said, them. "Let's just be the Globetrotters of a different region." Right, and and he would never play under for, the radar. Would never play for the Globetrotters uh, or Abe again. By the next season, um, we have him joining up with Marcus Haynes, and the two of them uh, become the co-owners of the Harlem Magicians which is another traveling team. Abe ends up publicly admitting that he really misses Goose, but in his regular pattern, he really insisted the Globetrotters would simply find somebody else to take his place. That was Abe's MO. Right. He's just going to say, all right, next person up, whatever that is. Now, after Goose Tatum leaves, they really need to find a new front man, a new clown prince. They had a couple people on the team that would fit the bill. Sam Boom Boom Wheeler was the most experienced, but he was kind of past his prime. The heir apparent was uh, Bob Showboat Hall, great player, but kind of temperamental, and no one really liked him too much. And enter one of the most popular and most famous globetrotters of all time, a guy by the name of George Meadow Lemon, also known as Meadowlark, right? Okay. And he uh, beca- he was enamored with the, the Globetrotters. He loved them. He watched that Paramount newsreel of the Trotters playing in MSG. Remember we talked about that in the last episode? Yes, yes. Uh, and he decided when he saw that, then and there, he was going to be a Globetrotter. And that's what he did. He focused everything on being a Globetrotter. He begged for a tryout after high school. He was told no. He ended up getting drafted into the Army. He was stationed in Austria on one of the world tours. Um, the Globetrotters come through. He he hooks up with them and he asks if he can try out or play and he ends up playing a few games with them in Europe when he was stationed there which is which is kind of fascinating before he was actually an official globetrotter all right now what we know a little bit about metalark he's a perfectionist he worked really really hard he practiced and practiced and practiced all of the sticks and the routines one good thing uh, is that he resembled goose physically which, okay. which starts to kind of beg the question about racial stereotyping uh, with Abe as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, that's interesting. But it also gets into the heart of the most complex issue in Globetrotter uh, history. Are the Globetrotters becoming a minstrel show for white people? And yeah. this, this is some heavy stuff, Rich. Really heavy duty stuff. This is not um, anything that I was maybe aware of when I was younger watching the Globetrotters. Neither was I, uh, just because you don't, you know, when the first time you're exposed to the Globetrotters and you can have memories of them, you're probably, what, eight, nine, ten years old. Something, yeah. And you're not thinking in those terms at all. No, no. What we know about Meadowlark is that he was a great showman, but he was not a good basketball player. All right. Okay. He learned how to be the showman, but if there was a, a straight basketball game, like if they were competing to to win the game, right. he usually 
sat on the bench. He could run, uh, but he didn't really play the game of basketball at a high level. So he is very much more um, uh, the, the playing a character yeah. than, than an ath than he's an athlete. He was not also the comic genius that Goose was. In many ways, he was simply a clone that did the same things. Goose improvised. Meadowlark followed a prescribed plan. He was a great technician, a talented imitator. But he would not create or play with any of the spontaneity that Goose did. Meadowlark was an actor reading lines, doing it amazing, and yeah. choreographed down to the second. Sort of like uh, Marcus Haynes leaving and all of a sudden the dribbling exhibitions same were yeah. doing the same exact thing. Uh, one of the teammates uh, of Meadowlark, uh, Leon Hilliard, uh, who played with uh, both of uh, Goose and uh, Meadowlark, was later quoted as saying, Meadowlark couldn't carry Goose's job strap to the laundromat. In 1956, Abe uh, tried to sign Bill Russell, and he fails miserably. Huh. Right now, obviously, we know Bill Russell, uh, amazing talent. R.I.P. Right, exactly, yeah. R.I.P. For sure, uh, he really underestimates Russell and his ability uh, to negotiate and understand the complexity of contracts. And I really think that's more on Saperstein more than anything else. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Now, fast forward to 1958. We have another amazing uh, talent coming out of college, one Wilt Chamberlain. And uh, Abe doesn't want to make the same mistake with him. He's leaving the University of Kansas early, but according to NBA rules, you couldn't sign until your class graduated, which was 1959. All right. So he's leaving early, so he's got a year here. Yeah, right. and I, again, I, I think getting back to Russell, I think it's worth noting that Russell, again, would use his career and fame to advocate for the very thing Saperstein showed no interest in him pushing for. If he would have somehow signed for the Globetrotters, I can't even begin to imagine that he would have been a Globetrotter for very long. He would have probably jumped up and amplified all of the stuff that Haynes did and then some. Right, right. And he would have been right to do so. Also interesting that, you know, Russell, who rejected the Globetrotters, won 11 titles. And Chamberlain, who embraced the Globetrotters, only won two. Now, it, it, it took a while, but finally, June the 18th, 1959, it was announced that the Big Dipper was now a Globetrotter. Remember, Big Dipper is a name for Will Chamberlain. Will right? Chamberlain, yep. Now, he's seven foot one, and he's the tallest player the Globetrotters had ever signed. And during the one full season that Wilt played with the Trotters, attendance goes through the roof. And Wilt uh, pours in the points night after night, and the more he scored, the more insecure that Meadowlark Lemon becomes. There even is a physical confrontation that happened one night. Uh, basically, Meadowlark jumps Chamberlain. Now, you need to understand, Meadowlark Lemon's six foot two, Chamberlain's seven foot one, and strong as an ox. Oh, yeah. Right? Basically, Chamberlain lifted him over his head until he calmed down. That's hysterical. Yeah. Now, after the season, Wilt signs with the Philadelphia Warriors, but he would come back every summer for the next 11 years to play with the Trotters, and they always kept a number 13 jersey ready for him. I had no idea, and I just did the math. That means that he would have been a member of the Lakers by the time he stopped summering for the Globetrotters. Isn't that crazy? That's, that's remarkable. Yep. I had no idea. Now, until his death in 1999, Wilt would say that playing with the Harlem Globetrotters was the most fun he ever had in sports. 
Now, some might want to say that's also because he was touring in another city every night. And if you know a little bit about Wilt Chamberlain, he he liked the <laughs> ladies a lot. And so uh, it provided him opportunities. Um, but this is a, 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 a family show. Family show. Let's not necessarily look it up on your own. Yep, absolutely. Really, the signing of Chamberlain is kind of the last great hurrah in the, the trajectory of straight basketball competition with the Trotters. Right. Abe is going to try unsuccessfully to sign Elgin Baylor. Oscar Robertson, Cassie Russell, Elvin Hayes, Lou Alcindor, also known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who will come into our story in a little bit. Uh, he even went after Bill Walton and Pistol Pete Maravich. And now, Pistol Pete makes sense because he was a showboat and he did all that things. Walton is a different thing altogether, although Walton was an incredible passer. Nobody ever talks about right. what a great passer from the point uh, Walton was. Now, I did a little digging into the Luel Cinder signing attempt. Uh, the Globetrotters offered him a $1 million lifetime contract. Huh. He rejected the deal, huh. even though his first contract he made with the Milwaukee Bucks, $250,000. But there's a lot of context going on here. And it really really points to just how out of touch Saperstein had become. And one can argue that he was completely clueless to the rise of the black athlete. Now, the future Kareem was already making the NBA excited when he was in high school playing power high in New York. And so his ability to earn a lot of money by playing straight up basketball instead of goofing around was nearly a foregone conclusion. Even though, you know, like if you think about it, $250,000 a year. Well, he's made up that lifetime contract with the Globetrotters by year four. Right. And so while most publications uh, set the timeline of the Globetrotters attempt in 1969, some some sources put the offer at 1967. Oh, wow. Yeah. When he was a sophomore at UCLA and Alcindor's uh, retort was, I came to do, I'm just as excited about my education as I am about basketball. Either date shows a profound cluelessness on Saperstein's part. Sure. Because Alcindor was on record, like I just said, he was on record about the importance of his education. But 1969 puts him two years removed from participating in the Cleveland Summit, which is another thing we probably should dive mm -hmm, into in a future mm -hmm. episode. It was a meeting that featured the likes of Jim Brown and Bill Russell in an effort to support Muhammad Ali for refusing to go to the Vietnam War based on his religious faith. Right, right. Again, this is the kind of stuff that Saperstein had no interest in supporting, yet here he was somehow arrogant enough to think that he could lure Lua Sindor to the Globetrotters. Yeah, and, and the Globetrotters would really never again sign another player that the NBA coveted. The The league that, that Abe kept afloat for so many years had really passed him by. Now, there is one special case here that's worth mentioning, and it kind of straddles the line between a player that the NBA coveted and a player that Saperstein could go after. Connie Hawkins. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So the Hawk was this gifted basketball player that was really a Jordan prototype. He said that they say that he could dunk when he was 11 years old. Oh, my gosh. Right? So, however, his career was derailed when he got wrongly implicated in a point-shaving scandal while he was a freshman at the University of Iowa in 1960. Now, he was wrongly implicated because back in 1960, freshmen were not allowed to play college hoops. Right, right. So it would have been impossible for him to be involved in the fix because right. he would not have been able to play. And this uh, point-shaving scandal went to the varsity team. So Hawkins got blackballed from the NCAA and the NAIA, and the NBA wouldn't touch him. So with nowhere to go, he ended up playing for the Globetrotters between 1963 and 1967. During his time with the Globetrotters, he actually sued the NBA on the grounds that the league unfairly blackballed him. Eventually, he made it to proper professional basketball, 
playing for the Pittsburgh Pipers of the ABA. Uh, we're going to talk about the ABA in a little yes, bit. Yes, we are. Yep. And um, then also with the Phoenix Suns, the LA Lakers, and the Atlanta Hawks, he ended up being inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame in 1992. Fascinating. Fa- right. I, I did not know that story at all. Yeah, and I knew that Hawkins had something to do with his, uh, the late entry into the uh, – into the league, but I did not realize that this whole Globetrotter backstory. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Now, there are, there are going to be many great players who, who uh, don a, a Globetrotter's jersey. Many were NBA caliber or who played in the league, but their talents uh, from here on out would be secondary to the show. All right. Mm-hmm. The Globetrotters at this point in time are really strictly entertainment. 1960, CBS contracts with the Globetrotters to broadcast one Globetrotter game per year across the country, and they were so popular that they were featured on the CBS's uh, Sports Spectacular show. Now, uh, <laughs> January 16th, 1966, they played a game on the campus of Michigan State in East Lansing, and they went against uh, a a movie on NBC, and then there was the NBA Game of the Week on ABC. So those are the three things on the big three networks. Now, remember, kids, there's only three networks at this point. Right. right? So this is Bill Russell and the Celtics playing Wilt Chamberlain and the Warriors. So, yeah. So So you're thinking huge. Huge, right? Now, at the end of the day, the Trotters earned a 16.2 Nielsen rating, and the NBA game, 3.2. That's, they destroyed them in the in the uh, ratings. That's incredible. Just because, yeah, no, yeah, I, I can't even. I can't even. The Globetrotters can't compete with the NBA for the best players, but they still put on a much better show, and a lot more people want to watch their show. Now, it was scripted. It was rehearsed. It was memorized, even down, Richard. This was what I didn't know. Down to exactly what the announcers would say where the cameramen would line up and Meadowlark Lemon always knew his lines and hit his marks. And that day, Abe missed the show on January 16th, 1966. He wasn't there. He was not feeling well. In fact, he was in very poor health. All right. Now, the short story is that that travel was kind of wreaking havoc on his body. Most likely, he had a small heart attack a couple of years prior. He was supposed to be taking daily heart medications. He often forgot to do that. He was supposed to slow down and travel less. In typical fashion, he kept working hard and he traveled more. And it really caught up with him in March 1966. He went into the hospital for prostate surgery, uh, had another heart attack while he was in the hospital and he dies four days later. Wow. Ten months later, Goose Tatum passes away in El Paso, Texas. And Oof. Goose's Goose's last years were filled with joy and pain. Richard, I was reading through um, one of uh, my the books as I was uh, researching this. The last couple years of Goose's life are just heartbreaking. We don't have the time to go into mm. it, but just absolutely heartbreaking. I'll tell you a little bit uh, at the break. Now, in 1967, then, the Globetrotters are sold to a trio of young businessmen for $3.71 million. In, right. This is late 60s now, right? America is changing. Really, the strife of the late 60s is going to spill over into the early 70s, both culturally and politically. And at the same time, the Globetrotters are changing. And this leads us uh, to really get into what what Rich kind of teased in the last episode, the most infamous games in Globetrotters history. But before we get to that, guess what? I'm going to do this. You know what that means? Yes. It's time for a break. Uh, We're going to be back, and we're going to be talking about one of the most infamous games in Globetrotter history. We'll be back. You ready? Showtime. 
On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And we're back. Uh, before the break, I teased the tease that you teased in the last episode. That's a lot of teases. So let's not tease anymore. Let's get into this great story, Rich. Go for it. All right. Thank you, Seth. Now, the first thing we have to mention here is one thing that we have not mentioned in the ep- in this episode. We didn't really mention them in the first uh, episode either. And I did the Google, did the uh, search on the Google Doc to make sure. The Washington Generals. Right, right. We really didn't talk we about We have them. not talked about the Washington Generals. And we all know them as the Globetrotters Intentional Patsy. Sure. It's part of the shtick and you could argue that they've been a key player of the Globetrotters shift to be entertainers first and basketball players and the basketball team second. Right. They were the hapless team that always loses except that is for this one game in 1971. Oh do tell. Do yes. tell. The Washington Generals actually did defeat the Globetrotters and it is unquestionably one of the most infamous games. I will actually say it is the most infamous game in Globetrotter history for two reasons. The first reason is obvious. The Generals won. But the second reason the game stands out is because the circumstances surrounding the game were just plain weird. Now, now, Rich, correct me if I'm wrong. This is really what drove us to actually starting to research the Globetrotters, right? It was yes. this story. It was this story and that really just opened a gold mine on either side of this story. Exactly. So th- we, we were planning on telling this story, but we found so much more. But continue. Now, before we dive into the game itself, there's a few things you need to know about the Washington Generals. First of all, they were not always called the Washington Generals. Right. In order to keep things fresh and make it look like the Globetrotters were, weren't whipping up on the same opponent every night, they'd occasionally play under different names and wore different uniforms. Some of the team names included the Baltimore Rockets, the Atlantic City Seagulls, uh, the Boston Shamrocks. How's that for getting around copyright infringement <laughs> right <laughs> and the new jersey reds the generals or whatever they were called on a, a particular evening had two cardinal rules whenever they played that they always had to abide by first of all they always had to allow the globetrotters to do their famous routines got it for instance you know they couldn't try to steal the ball if they were in the middle of the choreograph dribbling routine thing and yep. secondly they were allowed to play to win now normally this rule would never in effect the tricks and chicanery alone were always enough to allow the Globetrotters to build up a comfortable lead. But if the games were close, the generals were under no obligation to try to throw the game. What was that uh, NFL coach who's, who always would say, you play to win the game? Yeah, you play to win the game, right. yeah. Right. Um, exactly. And that's exactly the mindset, even though they knew going in, they had to like, let the shtick and the shtick would allow the Globetrotters to build up this huge lead. So yeah. the generals were led by a guy by the name of Lewis Red Klotz. Yeah. 
which is the perfect guy, the perfect name for a guy leading the team that would be perpetually getting their butt kicked. Right. Red Klotz just sounds like the name of a hapless foil. Right, right? exactly. Klotz was uh, short for a basketball player, five foot seven inches, oh, yeah. but he had skill. He played point guard for the old Baltimore Bullets in the Basketball Association of America, and he owns the distinction of still, to this day, being the shortest player ever on a championship-winning team. Ah, that brought me, I just thought of something, Rich. Can uh-huh. you name the tallest player ever to win an NBA championship? We want some hints? Go for right. it. Hint number one, he was seven foot five. He was not, hint number two, he's not a starter. Uh-huh. Hint number three, he won in 1985. And hint number four, his nickname was the Human Victory Cigar. His name was Chuck Nevis. You're right, exactly. <laughs> Look him up, man. He is odd looking. He's a ginormous man. Yeah. Right. And yeah. Sorry about that. Klotz was no. Klotz was also no stranger against playing the Globetrotters. So in the 1940s, he was a member of the Philadelphia Spas, a team that played in a different pro basketball league called the American Basketball League. Uh, the Spas played uh, the Globetrotters several times during his tenure with the team, and this is back when you know the Globetrotters played straight, and they won a few games in the process. In 1953, Saperstein approached Klotz about leading the team that would routinely travel with the Globetrotters. In 1953 is, you know, what you said, there's that watershed moment with the Globetrotters where things mm-hmm. started going downhill mm-hmm. a little bit. Klotz accepted, and he named the team the Washington Generals in honor of then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Ah, okay. Who was a World War II general. Klotz would wind up playing point guard with the team until he was 68. What? 68 years old, and he was still playing. 68? 68. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, the Globetrotters recognized Klotz's contribution to their legacy, making him the first non-Globetrotter to receive the team's Legend Award in 2007. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about the other legends uh, in that ring of honor. I'm sure glad that they recognize Klotz in this. You know, I think without his contributions, the Globetrotters are definitely not the same. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, he would go in and... He knew that, yeah, I'm going to lose again. I'm going to try to win, but I'm going to lose. And I, I know my role, and this is, you know, I play an important part. And the Globetrotters recognize that. Now, the rest of the story uh, gets weird. Okay. Now, there's a lot of mystique around this game that almost makes it folklore, which only adds to the account. Of course. So, first of all, we mentioned this earlier. The game was played on the campus of UT Martin in Martin, Tennessee. Yep. The Globetrotters were played there in 1966 without incident, but this did put them part in that of the state where they ran into issues due, due to the race. This is the cheese and bologna and crackers yep. at the back of the uh, grocery store, right? The fact that they played on the college campus adds to the mystique. The lack of the press coverage has a lot to do with this. Okay. Now, the local paper did not cover the game, which is fair. It wasn't like they were playing mean, meaningful games like the UT Martin basketball team. Sure. Even when we were growing up. The papers didn't cover when the Globetrotters were in town. No, absolutely. Yeah, it would um, be like if the papers were, were covering, you know, the you know a, a Broadway show. Right. Yeah. This muddies the information somewhat, as there seems to be a debate on when the game actually took place. The general consensus puts the game on January 5th, 1971, but this isn't necessarily set in stone. Okay. It is known that the game took place in the middle of Christmas break. All right, so January would make sense. Yeah. Okay. But... Everyone was still home for the holidays, so the campus was essentially dead. Okay. Because of this, there's nobody from the on-campus paper to cover the game. Now, as a result, there is exactly one photo that exists from the game. Oh, a close-up of Globetrotter Bobby Hunter cradling the ball. And it's said that the photo didn't even surface 
until it ended up in UT Martin's 1972 yearbook and was thrown in there without any context. That's fascinating. You just have a Globetrotter picture. Just in the a middle random Globetrotter in your yearbook the year after the Globetrotters were on your campus. So it said they played to a packed house, but that sounds much more impressive than it actually was. <laughs> yeah, packed house. How many? UT Martin's home court can only hold about 3,000 people. Oh, not so, much bigger than a, some high school gyms. Right. Yeah. So there's even debate on whom the Globetrotters were actually playing during that game. While the general consensus was that the Globetrotters took on the Washington Generals, there are a few people that insist the team was the New Jersey Reds that night. Whatever the team name, it was led by Klotz, who was 50 years old at the time. 50? Wow. 50. So all this weirdness sets the table for the game, which was somehow even weirder. Okay. Okay. The Globetrotter team captain, Fred Curley Neal, mm-hmm. arguably the team's best player at the time, and the guy who took over Marcus Haynes' dribbling act, did not play in the game for some reason. I do mean for some reason. There's no record of him being injured or ill during the time. He just sat out. This obviously made a difference. It doesn't matter what kind of team you are. If you're without your best player, there's bound to be an impact. No matter who that player is. Exactly. Yeah. This was not even the biggest for some reason moment involved in this game. Okay. For some reason, the Globetrotters didn't break out most of their antics. Huh. Yeah, they didn't abandon their shit completely, but they shelved so much of it, the game looked more like a traditional basketball game than a Globetrotters game. The reason for this decision is a mystery that's never been resolved. There's plenty of speculation, of course. There's talk that the Globetrotters were road-weary, Globetrotters were bored with doing the same routines, or that there was some argument that happened prior to the game, but nothing has ever been confirmed. Mm, interesting. For whatever the reason, the game played out like a real contest, and the generals came out blazing hot, making every shot that they were taking. In the Klotz biography, The Legend of Red Klotz, How Basketball's Lost Leader Won Over the World, Klotz said, quote, It seemed like the rim was the size of a trash can limb for us and a thimble for them. Everything we were throwing into the general direction of the basket was going in. We were getting every rebound, and we were stopping them defensively, end quote. As the game went on, the generals quietly amassed a sizable lead on the Globetrotters, pretty much without the Globetrotters noticing. Fascinating. Now, the Globetrotters can't be blamed for not paying attention. The scorers always played second fiddle to their antics. Sure, And the sure, antics sure. were pretty much allowed them to run up the score anyway. Right. So with their back, but with their back of tricks kind of left on the bench, they were unwitting, unwittingly getting their butts kicked. <laughs> and the story goes that they didn't realize that they were getting their butts kicked until there was about two minutes left in the game, and they realized they're down by 12. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. When they realized what happened, the Globetrotters kicked their game in the overdrive, and the generals responded by snapping back into what can only be loosely defined as defense. <laughs> so they kind of backed off and said, yep, get back into this game. And the formula worked as the Globetrotters came back and nabbed a one-point lead with 10 seconds left. So the generals called the timeout, and during the timeout, Klotz told the team that he wanted the ball for the final shot. Okay. Now, there's a few things going on here. First, it's a good time to remember that, again, Klotz is 50 <laughs> oh, years old right. at this time. Okay. It's also a good time to remember that the generals were allowed to try to win the game if they were in a position to do so. Finally, Klotz asking for the ball may have left his teammates wondering, is he going to try to actually take the game-winning shot? Or is he going to do something like accidentally turn the ball over? Fascinating. Right? Yeah. All right. This is a valid question since the general defense suddenly stunk up the joint during the final two minutes. Right, right, right. Right? The answer was made clear in the Klotz biography. He was quoted as saying, this is no different than a pickup game in the schoolyard. I want the ball in my hand at the end. If my team has a chance to win, I want to take it. Sure. Some guys shy away from the ball in that situation. I'm always going to want the ball. If they can't beat us with all that talent, with all those show plays, 
with the referees calling it their way, with the support of their fans, well then, it's not our fault if they lose, is it? So they come out of the timeout, and Klott takes the signature two-handed set shot. It goes in, and the Generals have a 199 lead with three seconds left. Okay. That's left enough time for the timekeeper to get involved. Oh, okay. Uh, it, yeah, wasn't right. out of, it wasn't out of the ordinary for the clock to mysteriously stop working at Globetrotters games. Sure, sure. Usually that, to help the, the, the Trotters, right? Yeah, usually it stopped to uh, help the Globetrotters have extra time to do their hijinks. Sure. This time, however, it was to make sure that they had the Globetrotters uh, have one more chance to uh, win the game. Okay. This is the classic WWE, the referee isn't looking kind right. of thing. Right? <laughs> so the Globetrotters give... The final shot to Metal Lark Lemon. Okay. We and know a on bit about paper, that. this looks like a curious choice. Because, right. like you said, his entertainment acting skills were on the court were far superior to his basketball skills. But he did know how to bury a hook shot. Right. He worked on that forever. Yeah. And that's his signature shot. So, with the, the generals not playing any defense, Lemon gets into a position to shoot the hook shot and missed. Hmm. Buzzer sounds, game over, generals win, Globe Trotters lose. Wow. The crowd was in stunned stun silence, yep. not fully comprehending what they had just witnessed. When they did come to their senses, they started booing the generals. <laughs> there were reports of kids in attendance crying their eyes out. Klotz would later go on to say that beating the Globetrotters was like we had just killed Santa Claus. Oh, my goodness. The generals raced to the locker room and celebrated with orange soda. Orange soda? They were in a dry county, uh, so they couldn't run to the liquor store and buy champagne for the occasion. Okay. The Globetrotters, on the other hand, were reportedly furious at the loss, although there's no official account of how they reacted. Hmm. This mystery leads to two legendary stories, one that's likely true and one that definitely did not occur. Okay. It's generally considered canon in the Globetrotters lore that Lemon came to the general's locker room after the game and congratulated them after the win. There's also a legendary story that Saperstein showed up at the Globetrotters locker room, absolutely steamed over what had happened. <laughs> This would have been a pretty neat trick since Saperstam was already dead right. at that time. There's no way that could have happened. Yeah. The two teams played again the next night in Arkansas, and the Globetrotters went back to the way things usually go by destroying the Generals. Prior to that game, however, the Globetrotters' owner at the time, George Gillette, apparently met with them and tore them to shreds. Lesson learned. Right. The Globetrotters initially tried to hide the loss from the general public, and it was the perfect environment for them to pull that off. There are only 3,000 people in attendance, okay. no media present, and of course, this is 1971, so there are no smartphones right. or social media right. to get the right. word out. But they eventually acknowledged the game with the rationale being that the defeat showed their vulnerable side, which somehow made their legacy greater. And they were right. The game, as mysterious and strange as it was, is as legendary as any victory they ever achieved, perhaps even more so. To this day, it remains the only loss to the generals officially recognized by the Globetrotters. As an aside, there were two unofficial times the generals beat the Globetrotters, once in 1954 and once in 1958, but they aren't officially recognized for some reason. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. There's some other things that happen around this time, too. Uh, September 1970, the Globetrotters enter the world of animation. They have a, uh, a contract with Hanna-Barbera. You remember Hanna-Barbera, right? Oh, yeah, right? Hanna-Barbera, of course. They were the best. Yeah. They also had, uh, it was the, the cartoon called The Harlem Globetrotters Show on CBS. It had six of the players being featured, and it was basically a good versus evil plot. They had the players travel the world in their red, white, and blue bus, accompanied by their canine mascot, Gravy, and their bus driver, Granny. It's... <laughs> You can go on YouTube and you can look at some of these things. It, it's it's crazy. We talked a little bit about that in the first episode, too. Okay, there. this begs the question. They had the bus driver, Granny. 
I feel cheated. How come the Globetrotters never did a commercial with uh, Larry Johnson and his grandmama that at the bus driver? That would have been awesome, right? right? Oh, they missed it. Yeah. You should have been their marketing team. Uh, the Globetrotters also had the variety show in 1972 called the Harlem Globetrotters Popcorn Machine. Which is fun because Chick Hearn, the legendary uh, basketball player, the voice of the Lakers, had the, one of his chickisms was he put that guy in a popcorn machine. Now, before we started recording, we were looking at some of this, trying to find some of it. Fascinating, right? The popcorn machine. Yeah, fascinating, incredible. The one, the first thing we saw was a clip from uh, the second one that they did, apparently, because we saw one in 1974, and uh, it starts out with the guys essentially rapping. This was five years before the Sugar Hill Gang did Rapper's Delight. Right. So the the popcorn machine. And don't get me wrong. It's not as it's it's terrible. It's about as good as the Super Bowl shuffle. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. But the show was on CBS. It had a star studded cast. It was the top rated in its time slot. 13.4 million viewers. That's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, that's it's incredible. Outperforming Adam 12, the Paul Lynn show. And we even saw Marcus Haynes on the show. Marcus right? Haynes shows up in, on this show. That's quite the imp- Incredible uh, occurrence. And he ends up doing lots of appearances with them later in life, too. In fact, I'll tell you about one in, in just a little bit. There's a second cartoon spinoff, 1974 to 76. And I have to say that the cartoon version still lives on well past this because Futurama. Right. Because one of the semi-recurring characters on Futurama was the Harlem Globetrotters, and they all show up in the year 3000, and they're all still talking 1970 slang. It's so funny. It's brilliant. Yeah. The Globetrotters end up signing a contract with ABC's Wide World of Sports in 1973 that would have them appear at least once a year. This gets into why we saw them yep. on Wide World of Sports on ABC. Now, in the first year, they were on the season uh, premiere, and they were announced by the Monday Night Football trio of Howard Cosell, Frank Gifford, and Don Meredith. Wow, that's that's quite high praise in that era. It ended up being the second highest rated episode in the history of wide world of sports, topped only by an Ali Frazier fight. Crazy. That makes sense, yeah. Now, they filmed a yearly special over the next 13 years, and soon the game would be kind of secondary to the feature segments. Yep. They would be cutting away to the feature segments of, of the Globetrotters roaming the French Quarter, singing with uh, with Charlie Pride, boogieing with Mr. T and Ben Vereen, riding Thunder Mountain at Disney World, touring FAO Schwartz, schmoozing with the Rockettes. So this was NBC's uh, Olympic coverage before the NBC <laughs> Olympic coverage. Right, exactly. Now, I watched one of these, like the whole uh, show on YouTube the other day. It mm-hmm. was a game from 1978 held at Fort Hutchinson in Sierra Vista, Arizona, kind of southern Arizona. Yep. And during the breaks in the game, had the Globetrotters like reenacting the shootout at the OK Corral. And it's pretty cringy. That sounds terrible. There's, there's one part where, where the people are trying to hang one of the Globetrotters. Oh, it's bad. Rich. Oh, no, no. no. It, it, is, oh, no. it is bad. All right, bad and cringy. All right, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, or maybe I won't. Who knows? The Globetrotters are going on the talk show circuit. If you are of a certain age, you'll remember not just Johnny Carson, but Dick Cavett, Joey Bishop, Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin. Yep. They were on all of those shows. They were on TV variety specials all the time. They played themselves on episodes of The White Shadow, Gilligan's Island, The Love Boat. Oh, yeah. All right. I love The White Shadow, one of my favorite shows of all time. It, it does not play well 
in the 21st century mm-hmm. too much anymore, but it was it was great. Now, in all of this, the Globetrotters really ceased being a basketball team. You know, back in the day, Abe would say, first we win, then we put on the show. But those days are, are long, long gone. Yeah. Um, sports writer uh, Frank uh, DeFord. Did I oh, say that right? Yeah, Frank DeFord, yeah. Uh, one of the all-time greats. One of your favorites, I know, Rich. My gosh, yeah. In a 1973 article, he wrote, quote, at some point, the Harlem Globetrotters ceased being anything in particular. This is also at a time when the ABA kind of begins, the American Basketball Association, which okay. was kind of the rival to the NBA. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the ABA becomes what the Globetrotters used to be when they played straight basketball. Yeah, it's why Connie Hawkins left the Globetrotters, because he had a chance to play with the Pittsburgh Pipers of the ABA. And the ABA, you know, they're the first to have a shot clock, the first to do a three-point clock. They do a red, white, and blue ball. It's really run and gun. It's uh, no-look passes. It's all sorts of things. And you had players that were allowed to themselves like Dr. J, David Thompson. All of those yeah. particular things. So in many ways, at this particular time, the, the, the quote-unquote straight basketball was now no longer played by the Globetrotters. The style of basketball is now really the ABA, which interestingly kind of breathes new life into the NBA when that merger happens oh, uh, yeah. a, as well. Now, the, the more popular the Trotters become on TV, the more disenchanted the players actually became. Now, a lot of the players were not really cool with Meadowlark. He got paid more than double of what the rest of them were. He was the only one who was allowed to have an agent do work for him, and that agent's going to come into the story in just a little bit. 1971, the East unit, which was the most, all the big name players were on the East unit. Okay. They went on strike. And they refused to play. Salary was one of the issues. They wanted meal money, a pension plan, better insurance benefits, limits on travel between games, extra pay for doubleheaders, more amenities on their bus, and the uniforms cleaned for them between games. But more importantly, they wanted the new ownership to recognize their union and to negotiate with the union moving forward. As the strike went on, the owners started hiring scabs, and started filling the dates on the calendar. The strike lasted for 27 days. A total of 14 games ended up being canceled. Now, the players did win a, kind of a partial victory. They got increased pay. They got some meal money. They ended up getting sodas on the bus. They got an extra set of uniform that was then uniforms that were then washed by the team equipment manager. And they all got a stock option plan for all of the employees. So it was not only the players, but all the employees got that. All right. But all is not well. Meadowlark is not on the side of the players. He's on the side of management. Huh. Now, his agent, interestingly enough, becomes the new president of the team. All right. Uh-huh. So things are getting a little bit muddy here. And then the owners hire back Marcus Haynes at 50 years old. Now he could still play ball. And All this right. now splits the team between those who supported the strike and those who supported Meadowlark and Marcus. So you've got now the players needing to have to choose. Now, eventually, Meadowlark and Marcus win out. Even though many of the other players got a few things that they wanted, there are some who were not given new contracts, and they basically broke the union or basically rendered it powerless. All right. So they didn't really get everything that they wanted. Now, most of this is happening behind, behind the scenes, Rich. There's really not a lot of this that happened out in public, but there was a lot more scrutiny 
on the team because of another reason, and that comes to be known as the Uncle Tom question. Yeah. Now, the the roots of this issue with the Globetrotters go back to the 1930s, to the criticism that Abe was putting on a minstrel show that demeaned black players and the pressures were really mounting at this particular time. Now, in the 1970s, really intense scrutiny is now on the Globetrotters. They're an easy target. Now, Rich, maybe you can kind of tell us, give us the real thumbnail sketch of what it meant when somebody was called an Uncle Tom. So the term Uncle Tom goes back to the book Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harry Beecher Stowe. It received criticism for having the titular character as being weirdly kind to his white slave owners. Today, it's used as a derogatory term with a broad range of unflattering uses from blacks acting as subservient entertainers for white people to black people, quote, acting white. So being called an Uncle Tom is a pejorative. This is not right. a, a nice thing. Now, some other things that, that were being said in the public square with this. Dr. Ross Thomas Runfula, a social science professor, wrote in the New York Times, quote, white American spectators are perhaps the most at ease when they are treated to the rhythmic jabbering of the Harlem Globetrotters who project a slave mentality for Mr. Charlie's entertainment. Hmm. And columnist Lacey J. Banks of the Chicago Sun-Times wrote, quote, the slapstick antics, falsetto voices, rubbery-limbed motions, toothy grins, and yelping dialogue are as modern as Aunt Jemima and the Little Black Sambo, and equally defaming to many blacks. The Trotter drama is a combined sedative stimulant for black fans taking a beating in housing, employment, mm. health, and education's benefits each day, uh, unquote. Ooh. Continuing on, uh, Willie Worsley, who played uh, on the 1966 national championship uh, team at UTEP, was quoted as saying, quote, the trotters are clowns, and some of us don't like it. Clowning like animals, acting the fool, cheating and screaming. They're out there telling all the whites what the whites want to hear, unquote. And it was also worthy of noting that uh, Connie Hawkins, the ex-globetrotter turned NBA Hall of Famer, also ended up adding fuel to the fire. Um, in a 1972 interview, Hawkins stated that the Globetrotters rose to fame by acting like Uncle Tom's and more or less telling their players to act a certain way. Now, criticism is coming both from white and black, but there are also some who defended the Globetrotters. All right, okay. so let's say the other side here. 1978, Jesse Jackson said of the Globetrotters, quote, I think they've been a positive influence. They did not show blacks as stupid. On the contrary, they were shown as superior. They were able to turn science into an art form. I know professionals today who are still in awe of Marcus Haynes and Goose Tatum, close quote. Hmm. They were definitely losing credibility in the African-American community, and it would take them many, many years to earn it back. Continuing in the history here, the team was sold in 1976 to Metro Media. That's the same company that owned Ice Capades. Okay. And uh, they moved the headquarters to Los Angeles. In 1980, Meadowlark ends up being fired. Now, in the press, it was said that he retired. But the truth is that he was fired by his old agent, who was the president of the team, with even with the new owners. Huh. Now, at this point in time, Geese Osby is promoted to the top showman on the national team. He also had Twiggy Sanders, Sweet Lou Dunbar sharing the duties on the international unit. And if you know the Globetrotters, maybe those names ring a bell yep. to you as well. A lot of the players were kind of glad that Meadowlark was gone. Unfortunately, the organization now is dying. Now, yeah. Rich, as a kid, 
I didn't know of any of this. I no, didn't, I didn't see didn't any know. of this in the press yeah. either. They were finding it hard to get booked. The players weren't happy. There was kind of a heaviness hanging over the organization. By 1984, revenue is not meeting budget projections. In March, Metro Media eliminated all the halftime entertainment. And now remember, Abe was the one who kind of started halftime entertainment. Yeah. And they eliminated. You know, it was a staple since the 1940s. They called it a cost-cutting move. Sure. They canceled the European tour which was the first time in 24 years they canceled that. They cut back to one unit, which basically meant that half of the players lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. They lost $500,000 in 1984. And in 1985, a new management team came in, known internally as the Circus Cronies, because they were the ones who ran Ringling Brothers. Interesting. Uh, Geese Osby and Curly Neal were subsequently fired then. Hmm. Now, 1985, they get a little bit of a bump. They signed their first female player, former Kansas University Olympic star Lynette Woodard. You know, I was thinking about this, and it led me to a thought. A Woodard signing should have made a bigger splash. It sure should have, yeah. But it didn't. And I think one of the reasons why was by 1985, the Globetrotters and their showmanship and all that were kind of unnecessary from a basketball fan standpoint because... By 1985, the NBA had, in a way, matched the spectacle of the Trotters. Sure. I mean, think about it. You had the Showtime Lakers and Magic's personality. Yep. Jordan and Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins doing ridiculous things with the ball. Yep. You had things like Spud Webb and his ability to dunk at five yeah, foot seven right, inches. Right. They weren't clowns at all. But they were doing incredible stuff with the basketball with real wins and losses on the line. I mean, you could play that freewheeling kind of basketball that the Showtime Lakers did and win multiple championships. The Trotters just seemed irrelevant by comparison. Absolutely. By December of 86, Metro Media sold the team along with the Ice Capades to the International Broadcast Company, or IBC. They're based in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. Sold them for $30 million, but things didn't get any better. 1991, IBC files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, couldn't restructure their debt. $66 million in debt by this point as well. Uh, and the IBC lender took control of the team. The season was reduced by half. All the tours were canceled. The scouting budget was eliminated. Training camp expanded. Expenses were slashed by $30,000. Red Klotz's fees for games was cut by 10%. Contributions to the pension funds were suspended for three years. Attendance is in a free fall, almost down 50% across the board in five years. By 1992, the Globetrotters were getting about as much publicity in police reports as in the sports pages. There's Oof. drug busts, assault charges, fistfights between players, domestic abuse, charges of rape. And the on the court, it was just... Just as bad. A show filled with sexual innuendo, foul language. That's just terrible. You can't stomach that kind of stuff. No, it's, I mean. it's bad. Really, Ugh. really bad. And as all good stories have, this is kind of the close of Act 2 Thank goodness. of the story. And as you know, good stories, we're going to have Act 3 Will there'll be some redemption. So hold on, folks. All right. We're not going to take a break. We're just going to keep rolling right through it here. So things start to get a little bit better. In 1993, former Globetrotter Manny Jackson had an interest in buying the team. Rich, you need to understand that he had a particular intention with buying the team. He was going to buy the team 
and he was going to basically close them down. Okay. He was going to wanted to kind of preserve the Globetrotters' legacy. He was going to create a museum, uh, reposition the organization to sell merchandise in perpetuity, perhaps even selling the team at a profit at some point. A little bit about Manny. After leaving the Globetrotters as a player, he went on to have an amazing career in corporate America. So he's not one who jumps to the NBA. He didn't have the talent for it. Right. First, he goes to General Motors, and then he has a 25-year career at Honeywell. He knew business. He knew basketball. Ball, and he knew that the Globetrotters of 1993 could not survive in either realm. So he had a handshake deal in place to purchase the team. He took his daughters to go see the team in Boston, and it was terrible. Okay. And, and he was like, all right, we got to close it down. We're going to close down the Globetrotters. Uh, I need to try to salvage a little bit of their la- legacy. So he calls it a team meeting uh, with everybody in the hotel. There's rumors are swirling about an impending sale. Uh, and he had every intention in that meeting to tell the players face-to-face that it was the end. But he gets into the room. And instead of his brain talking, it's his heart. And he remembers his time being in there. He looks into the eyes of the players and he couldn't bear to tell them that it was over. In the middle of that meeting, he went in for a particular purpose, but he, he changes his mind and he asked all of the players and coaches and staff uh, for their partnership. And he asked, with your help, we can bring this team back. He told them it's going to be hard. But if they stuck with them, it would bring the team back from the dead. Game time moment. He was not planning on doing that. Now, there were some other prospective buyers. So even though we had a handshake deal, there are some obstacles that he had to to, uh, overcome. Nat West, which is the bank that currently owned the team, refused to sell to Manny. And hmm. demanded a group of of investors. Could this be seen as a vestige of racism? Quite possibly. Because Manny Jackson being an African-American, they wouldn't sell it to him. Now, he tried to organize a group of black owners, uh, included uh, Isaiah Thomas in that uh, group and a couple of others, but they couldn't really get it all together. Now, he finally gets the backing he needed. He found a group of owners that would put up $5.5 million. Manny, by the way, put up $5 million of those dollars okay, for it. And he becomes the principal owner. And he is now the first Globetrotter to own the team. And, which blew me away, Rich, the first African-American to own a major sports franchise in American history. Wow. Yeah, this is the 1990s. Let that sink in. The first African-American to own a major sports franchise. That's bonkers. Now, the first months of his ownership of the team, Manny is in data collecting mode. He's in his business mode. He's evaluating people, processes. He leaves nothing unexplored. He looks at training camp contracts, personnel, talent, operations. He evaluates everything. He forms focus groups. He wants to find public opinion of the Globetrotters. And the results were kids had no idea who the Globetrotters were. And the old people didn't know that the Globetrotters were still around. So there is a problem. Yeah. So Manny had to fix both the business side of things and also the on-court product. He finds some success on both fronts. He uses his business connections from Honeywell, his knowledge of what it takes to be a high-level athlete. Training camp that summer consisted of not just workouts, but also work in the classroom. He now instructs all of the players on the history of the Globetrotters. He talks to them about media relations, public speaking. He institutes a zero-tolerance policy on drugs, alcohol abuse, and other behavior that would not play well in the press. All the players would be athletes first. 
entertainer second, and all racially stereotyped gags were removed from the show. Good. He brought back a second unit to double the amount of games that they could play, instituted a 15-minute autograph session after every game, which was soon expanded to 30 minutes because it became so popular. Remember when I told you that I went to go see the Globetrotters? Yes. I went to an autograph session. Oh, okay. That was one of the, that was one of the things that we did. It was phenomenal. With all of this, attendance begins to rise. Public opinion becomes a little bit better. All right, Manning's good. second uh, a season on the team. They appeared on Good Morning America and on Oprah. They got a new mascot named Globy, which they still have, by the okay. way. It's pretty awesome. Manny finally le- leaves Honeywell to run the Globetrotters full-time. He was working full-time at Honeywell and doing this. Now he says, oh, this wow. is going to be my that's, full-time job. Yeah. That's kind of like rough when you think about it. Just... Well, yeah. Exactly. Wow. He moves the operations to Phoenix, Arizona. He's now fully committed to the team, and it's become his passion. As the NBA uh, is is more of what the Globetrotters were, we kind of talked about this mm-hmm. before, Dr. J, Michael Jordan, uh, Magic Johnson, Showtime Lakers, Manny really wanted to make the Globetrotters more and more about the Globetrotter, well, what the Globetrotters were, a legitimate and basketball oddly team. Oddly enough, this is where the Globetrotters become kind of a breath of fresh air because mid-'90s, the NBA was past the Showtime Lakers and all that, and they had really become kind of like this unwatchable product where games were like being ground to the halt, defense and just dirty play, yep. and games finishing like 78-74. In September of 95, Manny organized an 11-game Ultimate Challenge series of games in Europe against the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar All-Stars. <laughs> It also includes Nate Archibald, Artis Gilmore, Jojo White. But Kareem said, uh, quote, now this is not going to be a show. It's going to be, nobody's going to throw a bucket of confetti on me. And, and <laughs> that sounds on brand. What you need to know, Kareem's All-Stars, these are old NBA players. Yeah. And the Trotters beat them pretty handily the first two games. Kareem is frustrated. He recruits some younger players, including Bo Kimball. They win the third game, 91-85, which breaks the Globetrotters' 8,829-game winning streak that dated back to that infamous game in 1971 in Tennessee. It all comes back, right? It does. It yeah. does. Now, some some were cynical about this. Uh, Sports Illustrated wrote, quote, what in the name of the Washington Generals is Abdul-Jabbar doing? And what in the name of Meadowlark Lemon are the Globies doing? Both the sky-hooking legend and the merry-making legend seem out of their elements. Now, April 1997, Manny reinstituted the College All-Star Series, and the Trotters beat the College All-Stars 126-114 in Phoenix with one Irvin Magic Johnson playing for the Trotters. And he scored a triple-double that night, 29 points, 11 rebounds, 15 assists. I remember that game because ESPN broadcast it. They did, and you can find it online. I watched a good portion of it as yeah. well. The Globetrotters continued to legitimize their on-court skills. They expanded their connections with NCAA teams. They played teams like Michigan State, Maryland, Purdue, Iowa, Minnesota, all right? And yeah. by the end of 2003, they had a record of 20-9 and nine versus college teams. Straight up basketball, Richard. Yeah. Right. Now, Manny also looked for some corporate sponsors. He then secures deals with Northwest Airlines, Disney, Denny's, Reebok, Valvoline, Jostens, and lots of others. 2001, he signs a five-year deal with Burger King to be the title sponsor of their tour. In 2002, he signs a deal with FUBU. Remember FUBU? I remember right? FUBU. Uh, to become the Globetrotters' exclusive outfitters. 
And FUBU jerseys and warm-ups went on to sell over $60 million in the first two years. Now, the success uh, uh, with FUBU cemented the Trotters back into the African-American community again. They're no longer seen as Uncle Tom's, but they're pretty cool. And this was by far the most influential business success of the early 21st century for the team. Now, there's something that I, we talked about previous about this is in the late 90s, early 2000s, we start seeing the rise of this other basketball group, the N1 group. Right. Now, and one, if you're not familiar with it, it is the group that bunch of uh, touring uh, type of basketball program featuring guys that were not good enough for the NBA, but they were kind of streetball legends, and they were known for doing remarkable, ridiculous things with the basketball in the court in the course of play, whether that's passing, dribbling, what have you, and unlike the Globetrotters. They actually started in Harlem right, in Rucker right, Park, which right. is kind of like, you know, the epicenter of all streetball. And what's interesting is they're having this meteoric rise, and all of a sudden they start falling off a cliff for the very same reasons that the Globetrotters did. Players weren't getting money. Um, the owners were living high off the hog while the players were not. They were getting pizza while um, the owners and stuff were eating, like, filet mignon and mm. stuff like that. And the players kind of revolted. And then it also didn't hurt that Nike got involved with the uh, freestyle sneakers and stuff like that and kind of uh, just wiped them out. Right. right. So it's really kind of inter interesting that at, during this time you have the Globetrotters, a very much a Globetrotter-esque type of organization, come in and get cut by the very same things that hurt the Globetrotters in their uh, second act. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Right. Yep. Really, Manny Jackson rebuilds the business side and the on-court side, but he also wanted to reclaim the, the Trotters' image as ambassadors of goodwill, especially in the black community. Mm -hmm. And over the next decade, he would donate uh, $10 million to charities and nonprofits, including uh, Nelson Mandela's Children Fund, Make-A-Wish Foundation, Red Cross. They began hosting wildly popular summer youth basketball camps across the country, began traveling the world again, donating basketballs, building courts, raising money everywhere they went. They began speaking in schools about black history and other programs. When Manny took over the team, he he really not only inherited the name and the day-to-day -day business of the Globetrotters, he also inherited the history of that. And he was able to kind of mend the public opinion of the team, but there was lots and lots of broken relationships along the way. There were a lot of former players who held a grudge, who were downright angry at the Globetrotters for how they were treated, even though a lot of that was due to, to Abe Saperstein. They were not happy. So Manny formed uh, the Legends Ring. We talked a little bit about this earlier. Yeah. It's kind of like the Hall of Fame, and they retired some numbers. They wanted to re remember the stars and celebrate the past. As of today, these are the ones who are in the Ring of Honor. Um, Wilt Chamberlain, Marcus Haynes, Fred Curley Neal, Charles Tex Harrison, Geese Osby, Meadowlark Lemon, Sweet Lou Dunbar, and Goose Tatum. These were kind of the, the star players. But there's a lot who were never stars, but were still felt very ostracized from 
the Globetrotters. So in 2000, Manny forms an alumni association. He wanted to connect and help heal the divisions in the Globetrotter family. In 2004, he donates $250,000 of seed money to help any former players who needed assistance with day-to-day life because some of them were didn't have any money, couldn't live, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And mm-hmm. in the 10 years uh, since Manny took over the team, basically they went from the brink of collapse. Literally, he was going in to tell them that it's over. It's over. That it's done. That they have really kind of, they really turned into one of the most beloved properties in the world once again. September 2005, Shamrock Holdings purchased an 80% stake of the Globetrotters. Manny was like kind of looking to retire at this particular time. What I find interesting is Shamrock Holdings is uh, funded uh, from Roy E. Disney family and uh, is kind huh. of owned by the Roy E. Disney family. October 2013, the Globetrotters were purchased again by the Hurchins Family Entertainment. Uh, this is what I got from the from the uh, internet. It's the largest family-owned themed attractions company in the U.S. So they own Dollywood in Tennessee, Silver Dollar City in Branson, tons of water parks, aquariums, other entertainment properties all over all right. the place. All right. The Globetrotters are still around. You can still go watch them play. Uh, they entertain. They have over 400 live events every year. They have multiple teams. Uh, Manny's influence is still there. Uh, we have top. Ca- they have top caliber athletes, wonderful entertainers. Close to 750 men and women have played for the Globetrotters over the years. That's cool. Off the court, the, the organization continues to evolve beyond the live event. Uh, there's a full line of licensed product. And they're always involved in the community. One of the things I found really interesting is every year since since 2007, the Harlem Globetrotters host an annual draft of college players that they would draft to play for the, the Globetrotters. Now, this isn't that they were going to actually come and play for the team. It's more of a, an award that you were okay. awarded to be drafted by the Globetrotters, meaning that they believe that you have what it would take to be a Globetrotter, that you know, you're know you good in community involvement, that you are a talented basketball player, and all sorts of things. So it became a, an award. And you can go on their website, and you can see the list of all of those people that they have, quote-unquote, drafted. I'm curious to see if there's any uh, crossover between this list and the players that played in the N- and the N1 league. That would be fascinating. Because there's only one N1 guy that made it to the NBA. Okay. Uh, skip to my Lou, who was also better, uh, whose real name is Rafer Alston, who played with the Miami Heat. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then you know, all these other guys like, you know, Hot Sauce or The Professor, I wonder if they got... We should look that yeah. up. Um, recently, the last couple of years, the the um, the Globetrotters have new uniforms. Okay, um, they're mostly like a, a really dark navy blue with a little bit of the sublimation of the of the stripes. On uh-huh. them. They're really beautiful um, if you want to take a look at them. And in fact, they become really popular once again uh, for people to purchase. Here's something interesting. In June of 2021, the Globetrotters filed a petition to join the NBA as an expansion franchise. Now, hmm. of course, the NBA politely declined. But who who knows what what the future might hold? I I wonder what would Abe would think, Rich, if the Globetrotters would someday become a member of the NBA. Yeah, I, I also wonder if Abe would have been alive, how much money he would have tried to throw on Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, or LeBron James. Without a doubt. Yeah. Right. right? 
Wow, Rich, uh, amazing adventure. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, this is long. Oh, when all is said and done, we're going to be have talked about three hours about the Globetrotters. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we know that these are long episodes. We really appreciate it. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Uh, I want to put a plug for the book uh, called Spinning the Globe by Ben Green. It's really meticulously researched and referenced and, and really was one of the foundation pieces for uh, our research in doing this. Uh, if these episodes intrigued you, do yourself a favor, pick up a copy of that book. It goes way, way deeper into the story. Again, I'll put a link for that uh, yeah. in the show notes. And I want to mention just because... Because I know we talked a little bit in the last part of this about N1. Fascinating Netflix documentary uh, called The Rise and Fall of N1. Oh, okay. And check it out. It's uh, pretty incredible. It's part of that uh, Untold series, I think it's the name of it. But it's on Netflix. It's worth watching. Uh, it's an incredible uh, font of uh, information. Fantastic. Yeah. So if you, uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. If you yes, have a, a topic idea for us, you want to chat, agree, disagree with us, please uh, send us an email. I'll put a link to that into the show notes as well. And I guess it's time to put the, the music on. Uh, yeah. Rich, our next episode is all about sports curses. Yeah, we're not talking about like the guy like dropping an F-bomb at the postgame conference. No, 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 not at all. Uh, we've got some doozies for you and it's some that maybe you've never heard of uh, yeah. before. Uh, we would love to know your favorite sports curse uh maybe even give you a shout out on the episode so let us know uh, on twitter at athletic obscura please follow us there and get some weird strange and unknown sports facts just about every day again we're thankful for being part of the electrocast family of shows and you can check them all out at electrocast.com forward slash podcast i can't wait till the next time when we invite you into another discussion of the weird strange and unknown in sports adios everybody good night can't even tell you how much I didn't tell you. So much I didn't tell you. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.